You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, we appreciate you guys joining us as we are now on video. Yes, you're watching this here on the Hazard Ground YouTube channel or on the Killcliffe YouTube channel or in the Killcliffe app. We certainly appreciate you guys joining us each and every week. Uh, before we get to this week's story, just a couple of quick reminders about Hazard Ground. Follow us on all of our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to leave comments below on the YouTube channel or uh, on any of our podcast reviews. We appreciate the comments and they mean so much to us. And make sure you guys follow Killcliffe as well at Killcliffe on all their social media sites. This week's guest is a retired Marine Corps sergeant who spent six years in the Marine Corps with two deployments to Iraq. And in 2004, he lost both of his hands in a firefight and an explosion only to return to active duty on the Marine Corps at the Marine Corps Martial Arts Center of Excellence as a hand-to-hand combat instructor. He is now retired and he is Sergeant Eddie Wright joining us on the hazard ground. Eddie, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We appreciate it. Uh, Very incredible story. One of the few people who is an amputee, in this case, a double amputee, who's been able to return to active duty. So congratulations. I mean, obviously, it meant enough to you to go back. A lot of people don't have that sort of, uh, you know, I guess, gumption or or courage. You know, they're willing to sort of just fix themselves personally and move on. Uh, So we'll get to kind of why you went back to active duty uh, in a moment. But let's start at the beginning for you and how and why you got in the Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, well, that's kind of a long story. Um, if I, if I, if I let it be, I, uh, I've always wanted to be a Marine since I was a kid. I just thought they were cool. You know, you know, some people are, uh, my dad wanted to be a doctor when he was five. He said, I want to be a doctor and he became a doctor. You know what I mean? I was kind of like him. I'm like, I want to be a Marine. (laughs) You're fixing holes. I'm making holes. And, uh, we, we, um, I mean, I just kind of never lost that goal kind of in the peripheral of my mind. And uh, believe me, I put a lot of things in my way that would normally prevent a person from joining the Marine Corps. Like the fact that I was able to join the Marine Corps is a miracle in itself. So I ended up becoming... Why was that? Well, I was a little rowdy kid. Uh, and I got in a lot of fights. I was an angry kid. Um and for whatever reasons, you know, we all got our reasons in childhood, but, uh, I got a lot of fights and I got in a lot of trouble. So I got myself, uh, thrown in juvie for a, for, for a good stint. And then, um, uh, I don't know if people believe me when I tell them this. So <laughs> I, I ran around with these kids around the streets here in Seattle, getting in fist fights. I was hanging out with Samoan dudes. Like I was like a white kid, like, uh, yeah, I'm Irish, I guess. The only other people that liked to fight were the Samoans that back then. I don't know. But I was an idiot. I was a moron. And um just a kid. And uh, so then I got a, a juvenile uh charge and you know, a few, and then uh when I was uh um you know, I got out of juvie and I was on probation for that. And I uh got caught with a pistol. Well that that becomes an adult felony because I was nineteen at the time. And so wow. I wasn't doing anything with it or anything. It's just a violation of my probation. So 
man, I t- like to, t- I didn't start off uh, on the right path, that's for sure. So I had to join the Marine Corps. Uh, I'd been expelled from, uh, I got expelled from high school for fighting. So I had to go get my GED while I was in uh, juvie. So get this, I, I joined the Marine Corps with a GED, a juvenile felony and an adult felony. And that is a you can look that up in the records. I guess they'd call it a class four waiver or something. And I had to work hard on that for years. Uh, I did community service, paid restitution. I did all kinds of extra volunteer work. I started talking to the recruiters like at least two and a half years before I even got to join. Like these guys knew me very well by the time uh, I joined and, and they went to bat for me with the, uh, review board with the Marine Corps for the waivers and things like that at recruiting command. And it didn't hurt that I had a solid letter of recommendation from a world war two Marine who was taking POW on a corregidor using fourth Marines POW for three and a half years. And he wrote a great like reference letter for me. I think that had a little sway too. So, and then I became a Marine and lo and behold, I channeled that energy into being a good Marine. And I, and I, it just was, Good time. Isn't it great how recruiters will go through extra special lengths in order to get somebody in, right? <laughs> I I can't believe it. But the, yeah, these guys would do anything. And this is before 9 11. So, right. <laughs> you know, they're, after 9 11, they're probably like, no way. We got plenty of volunteers, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, did, I, you, did you have a feeling of what boot camp was going to be like? Yeah, of course. I've, um, been into the Marine Corps my whole life. So I watched about every movie, you know, um, that I could, I read books, the the books, you know, the uh, books I read about, uh, recon Marines in Vietnam are what made me want to be a recon Marine. Um, so, but I played rugby too. I was playing rugby before I joined the Marine Corps and I was a little older than everybody. I was 25. They call me gramps boot camp, like 25 years old, man. Um, and so um, I was in shape and I knew it was a mental game and it was, you know, it was, it was get you, you'd be tired, but I never, you know, it wasn't for me, you know, it was, it was a challenge, but, and I, and I felt fantastic, but it, it didn't, uh, it wasn't that tough. Yeah. I, I know you said that, you know, they called you gramps and everything, but life experience between 18 to 25, I think when you talk to anybody, it's a lot that you learn and grow. I mean, you're still not oh, a yeah. adult a true adult by 25 hell you yeah. can even rent a car as a guy at 25 but you know from that standpoint did you look at some of the 18 19 year old kids in boot camp and realize that they were setting themselves up to do dumb things that they probably were gonna get in trouble for could you could you like see that you mean during uh boot camp yeah, during boot camp yeah oh yeah uh you'd see you know fools try to steal food from the chow hall or or, um, you know, they'd have shit in their pockets and try to lean back in formation and sneak a little snack. I, one of my great, one of my, one of my buddies, we still keep in contact. Uh, he, he, we were right across each other in the squad bay. And so he was an older guy too. So we kind of like bonded. We were both kind of been working out. We were ready for it, you know? So we were on a different level and, um, it was Christmas time and we were at the, at the range and, and, uh, uh, some kid got a big, big care package and, uh, the drill instructor, 
was the only infantry drill instructor and he was a staff sergeant and he'd been in the first Gulf War. So he says, open it up, P, or recruit so-and-so. I can't remember the kid's name. And uh, he's like a real quiet kid from the Midwest, <laughs> little blonde-haired kid. So he opens this package up, it's full of cookies, <clears throat> jam-packed. And, you know, you're starving in boot camp. You're like, cookies? We're freezing. We're outside. You know, it's like sunset or something. And uh, he's he made the kid pick the letter up and read it out loud. And it said some stuff, you know, love your mom. But here's some cookies. Share it with your friends. Made with love and from the oven. The kid's, like, crying, like, about to cry when he's reading it. And the drill instructor says, good to go. You see that dumpster over there? He said, go throw that trash away. And that kid went... I mean, he made it almost all of the dumpster. We were doing we had, we were doing push-ups. This kid was over there crying on the way to the dumpster, and he yelled at him. He told him to get his ass back over, and he ended up being cool. He gave it. He let everybody have two cookies. He made the fat bodies get in the front, lean and rest, and do a shitload, a boatload of push-ups <laughs> before they could eat their cookies. And so my buddy, he thinks he's slick. The drill instructor's not looking, and he had to walk by the fat bodies doing push-ups, and he's like reaches down whoop, as he's walking and snatches this kid's cookies and oh, just eats them. And I was cracking up. And um, the drill instructor did see him. And so he had to pay for that. But God, that was funny, man. Yeah. Oh my God, the things you'll try to get away with, right? Uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. All right, so you, yeah. you finish up boot camp. Uh, what's next for you? School of Infantry. So... I really, really enjoyed School of Infantry. You know, it was a little bit less, um, you know, it's not boot camp. You know, know, I'm a real Marine. You're still getting, you know, you're treated according to your respect deserved. I'll just say it like that, you know, within that culture pre, you know, back then I don't think they paid attention to hazing as much as they do now. Um, And this is pre-9-11, right? That's right. That's right. It's pre-9-11. It's in the... so this is right before 9-11. I'm at School of Infantry in January of uh, uh, 2001. And uh, I uh, got the MOS 0311, which was my preferred MOS. And then I had the highest GPA and PFT score out of the infantry uh, company that I was training with. And um, it was uh, it was Alpha Company. I'm looking at the graduation. I still have the graduation picture in my office. Um and uh, they meritoriously promoted me to Lance Corporal. So then I thought it was hot shit. Oh, man, I'm hot shit. I'm already a Lance Cooley. <laughs> My NCOs, they go, you're going to 3rd LAR. I'm like, what's that? Nobody would really tell us. Me and this other guy, the cookie stealer, we're going to 3rd LAR. <laughs> yeah. And um, so we're like, what is 3rd LAR? So it's 3rd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion, which is uh, light armored vehicles, LAV-25s and mortar variants. And us, us as infantry Marines, we're just like scouts in the back. So we're kind of spoiled infantry Marines. Some people jokingly call us lazy-ass reconnaissance because, yeah. like, you know, you don't have to carry your own gear. You strap to the vehicle. So we go to the field for a month. I'm putting a bunch of canned food in there. You know, you don't, you can't do that in the regular grunts. So... Uh, it's in 29 Palms in the desert, which I think is a great place for young Marines who don't have families. You just train, train, train. There's less restrictions on training, you know? Sure. And, uh, it builds good Marines. Um, and then, uh, I can keep going. You want me to keep going? And just, sure, yeah, no, keep going. Man. 
So I really enjoyed 29 Palms. I uh, uh, went through some schoolhouses there as a Lance Corporal that, that um, you know, really uh, uh, gave me some skills that I could share with the rest of the units, like Marine Combat Instructor, Water Survival, and then the MAP program, the Martial Arts program. I raised myself up to the level of Green Belt Instructor because they let me go to that course. And... Um, so then uh, I went on a six-month UDP, unit deployment program. So in the Marine Corps, the, you they have the Marine Expeditionary Units, and then they have rotations out to certain bases around the world for infantry Marines and things. So we went to Okinawa for six months. And while we were in Okinawa, uh, six of us, three crewmen and three scouts and my platoon commander flew down to Darwin, Australia on a C-130 uh, my platoon commander had put together a cool training package for three weeks with the Australian military, the North Force, uh, who's up in the Northern Territory, uh, headquartered at Larrakia Barracks in Darwin. And that was really, really cool. Uh, I, we, we had been taking, uh, you know, we went to the ranges with them. We did some actual real world patrolling against smuggling smugglers, you know, um, they have an issue with like uh, people smuggling flora and fauna uh, or even drugs or illegal immigrants. Um, and so set up some LPOPs at old, old airstrips out in the middle of BFE and things like that. You know, it was basically training, but as a young Marine, it was kind of like, you know, wow, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. And so we took a survival course that was taught by them and uh their aboriginal counterparts so the north force has reserve guys who um are aborigine they're native aborigines and they use them for tracking and guiding and bushcraft and uh they make awesome i mean i would rather you've know, got one of those guys with you is better than like 10 marines probably if you're stuck out there you know what i mean like right. learn like where days before I look around like I'd starve to death and die of dehydration if I got stuck out here. All of a sudden now I know all these foods and these things and I'm making rope and we're doing all this crazy stuff. Well, we were about to start the prac at part where they just send us out into the wilderness to fend for ourselves with like a boot and a shoestring or something. And uh, they come in in the morning and the sun had, it was just starting to rise. We were already up, ready to go. And the Aussies, we hear them, shouting from a distance we're like five and a half hours out of darwin by uh land rover through dirt road and kakadu national forest you know or park it was just a, like a really cool experience but i hear in the distance oi get all the yanks and uh, we're like up oh, looking at each other like here it goes man it's about to go down we're gonna start this training and uh and um we'd slept under you know slept on the ground made sure to put a Marine between me and the river where I could hear the saltwater crocs splashing around just in case I could jump up. Uh, and um, they told us America had been attacked. And we're like, what? Uh, this must be some training scenario. I'm thinking in my head, uh, but the urgency and the like, get your shit. Let's get the fuck out of here. America's just been attacked. We're like, what, what happened? They're like, I don't know. We don't really know yet but this is for real. This isn't training. Training's 86th, you know? So we're like, Oh shit. Uh, I'm sorry for swearing. Um, so, okay, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, uh, 
you know, we had a nice uh, five and a half hour ride back into Darwin thinking, oh, are we at the front end of World War Three? We had no idea because they got the word over the one sat phone that they had with them, you know. And that right. was like the little iridiums. It was like set up the freaking. You didn't get a lot of details, obviously, other than America got attacked. Like you didn't hear World Trade Center. Did you hear the Pentagon? Did you hear any of that stuff or no? No, we just knew it was New York City. Something happened in New York City. That's all we knew. And um, it wasn't until we got back into Darwin where they had TV and radios. You know, we're just like, whoa. You know what I mean? Like it was you, when you see those first images, what are you thinking? so surreal and uh of course then my mind goes to work like well we're the forward deployed like who, who you know it could be that we're the first ones into combat you don't know as a matter of fact the mew had just arrived uh before we went on our survival course and that was the mew that rolled into afghanistan in 01 so the recon marines that stayed at Larkia barracks that i uh that came in as we were coming out uh, ended up, I ended up actually being teammates with some of them, you know, but they were the first ones in Afghanistan, uh, with that Mew. Uh, well, if you don't count like the air force guys and those other guys that were already there, you know? Yeah. So do you end up leaving Australia Okinawa at that point or you stay there? We went, yeah, I'll tell you what we did. We went, um, we had to get back to Okinawa, but we were low on the, on the rung as far as priority for the, um, flights and everybody was trying to get out of there uh so finally we got a c-130 and uh we flew back to oki the the whole floor in between the cargo net seats on that c-130 was just layered in cases of australian beer and looking back on that (laughs) i know like four x's and crown victorias like uh or vbs what are they crownies and vbs yeah i it's been a minute anyway uh looking back on it i'm thinking what a bunch of idiots why didn't we just start cracking them bad boys open <laughs> what are they gonna do yell at us because you know hey you're the ones i don't know you're supposed to be bringing <laughs> yeah so um anyway uh we made it back to Oki, and then we did augmented security for the air force base kadena there for a couple of weeks everything was really ramped up i mean we had live rounds and everything we were driving lavs around the air force base and you know it was kind of very serious and then our uh we rotated back um in january and then from january to the point of the invasion in 03 was a consistent workup so we unlike guys that deployed now we had a long time to train for the mission, get familiar with that kind of warfare and our enemy. So what you talk about the train up and you said January, I'm sure you're referencing a boat too. Yes. Now, we don't invade Iraq for another 15 months at that point in time. I mean, had anybody said Iraq to you or are you training and thinking Afghanistan the whole time? I, I seem to remember it always being a focus on Iraq. Uh, Nobody said anything about. I, I, the focus was never on training for Afghanistan. It was. It was it, somehow immediately we're going to Iraq or uh, something like that. Yeah, because we were doing armor ID. I was studying. We were studying the Iraqi military. We we're studying studying their vehicles, um, things like that, and training, getting our SOPs and our tactics. You know, getting familiar with our weapon systems. You know. 
was there a sense that you started like chomping at the bit after you know such a long time when you start the train up? Oh yeah, did we you, were ready was, to go. Did, did you think you're sitting there going, "When are we actually going to do this thing?" You know, like what sort of mentality are, are you in at that point? I think you know, but I I remember it was a catalyst to take our training very seriously. When it, when finally we got word that we were leaving, I can't remember exactly, but I remember they said they sent us home for leave for like a month, and we're like, oh that, yeah, we're going somewhere, you know what I mean? They're giving us all a month leave to go home over the um, holidays, and then I think we flew out in February, early February of '03 to Kuwait, and, and to Kuwait. So I mean, obviously you knew it was coming. Um, yeah. Did you know that you were going to be part of the invasion at that point? Or oh, yeah. 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 I mean, so what do you hear? Again, you know, you're, you're a, what, a PFC at this point in time? or, or last uh, I was a corporal by then. Okay. Yeah. So how much information is a corporal getting about the invasion itself at this point in time? None. None. <laughs> None. But you know you're there for the invasion. So I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering – you you know you're getting into something. Yeah. How do you train? How do you keep your focus? How do you do anything without really knowing what you're doing it for? Well, we were doing we were training for war, and we were always such a, training such a for war. Big thing, yeah. right? I mean, you you could stay on the range for eight hours a day and quote train for war. Well, train for the right war, you know, <laughs> and uh, we were pretty busy and uh you know you keep your mind on your work as far as like oh uh, i mean i i personally me i thought about my mortality i thought about um the, all the different ways you could get i could get killed um i just learned from past experiences sometimes especially you know you kind of learn this as a kid getting into fights like uh you can be as apprehensive as you want or worrisome as you want or afraid as, as, as you are. But once the fists start flying or once the bullets start flying, you kind of lose that, you know? Uh, and then you, you, you know, so I, I knew that I shouldn't worry about things that I really can't control. And I just focused on work. And so, but to be there and actually on the border and then when they start to give us our uh plan of attack in you know what we were you know allowed to know or what they were allowed to share with us um you know our breach lane across the border through the minefields things like that then it's starts to sink in like this is becoming real uh there was we were at the rct i think i think it was five rct five man it's been seven uh it's been since so three it's been almost 20 years but yeah. uh, there was a kid the young pfc there still remember his name his name is pfc dylan and um he was so afraid of combat he was so afraid to go to war uh he told one of my friends he said corporal i gotta go make a head call he said okay you know where you need to be at 1400 he said i corporal went over to the portal port of johns there was like a row of 50 of them or whatever went in there and uh, killed himself, just blew his brains out, you know? Uh, so, He's so afraid of war they decided to kill himself? I doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Um, but, you know, war can be a daunting thing for people. I think he let his mind just get a little, 
just got ahead of him or something. I I don't know, you know. Um, so did that affect the unit at all? I mean, did people were people shake shaking up hard, or were they just? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, no offense to this kid, but we went straight back to work, like nothing happened. We had to keep our mind in the game. I, I, I think there's a sense of, and without being callous, you know. Yeah. And it's funny as soon as you said, "I remember his name." The first thought in my head is, "Okay, this person's no longer alive." Um, yeah. But, and again, not to be callous, but there, there's a sense that that can refocus you, right? And it's easy to discard it as that's a marine who didn't have his stuff together. That's a marine who couldn't handle this. You know, you all need to be stronger than that. And, they, and I feel like the leadership uses that more of a leverage teaching point than necessarily, you know, well, sort of yeah. emotional moments. I mean, I our, our, our command certainly didn't say, you know, that was a weak body. You couldn't hack it. You guys, like, no, no they did not say that. They, um, okay. it was almost as if it was like it happened. It sucks. It's fucked up. But we're about to cross a border into a country and invade them in a couple of days. We can't dwell on this this is going to happen in combat it kind of brought a sobering reality like people might die you know it's interesting before you said that you know when you got there you started thinking about your own mortality you're about what 27 years old this time 20 yes at 20 26 maybe yeah 26 so i mean that, that was the same age i was for my first experience in combat so i, I just you know, I was a single guy, wasn't married like you, had no kids at the time. So I didn't have anybody but myself to worry about. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. not that I, I didn't think my family would miss me, but it wasn't like there was anything left in the tape. If I had perished from the earth, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, that was something I had to care for or take care of, right? Like, uh, I was an yeah. easy death in my mind, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I never really got to mortality point in facing that until after I had been in a couple of skirmishes when it really kind of hit me like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm surprised you had that forethought. Is that, you think that was a lot from your experience as a kid getting in fights that you know that you can be on the wrong end of things? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've had my ass kicked plenty of times, <laughs> you know, so your record uh, wasn't that good as a kid in high school, eh? <laughs> oh, no. I just uh, fought a lot. So eventually you're going to pick a fight with somebody who's, a, who's oops-a-daisy, this guy. Yep. You know? And then there's no such thing as the king of the hill forever. Right. Who you are, you know? I mean, you can just look at the UFC. Look how many kings have fallen eventually. You know? Someone's going to get you. When, when you look back on that and, and talking about your own mortality, um, do you feel like it helped you in your experience going through combat at the time? Yeah, I think it did because I made my peace. Like you said, I I didn't have any kids or uh, anybody to or or a wife or anybody to worry about. I saw a lot of guys who there was a few guys just you know like get under my get on my nerves. It's oh, I wonder if we're gonna go or when. And then once once we were there, when are we going home? I'm like. What, what are you talking about? That has nothing to do with here, right here today. We're in combat. Get that out of your head. You know what I mean? Um, and I was okay if I died because like I said, I, I always wanted to be a Marine. Um, I'm not like Lieutenant Dan. It wasn't my destiny to die out there. You know what I mean? Right. Well, uh, 
but I, it really did help me when I did get hit and I did lose my hands. It was one of the things, me having my mind wrapped around it, not avoiding it and thinking about it and contemplating it, I think contributed to me being able to handle myself uh, better in that fucked up situation. Sure. We'll get to that in a moment. All right, let's get to the actual invasion. Uh, crossing the border, it would have taken about three or four days to actually get to Baghdad um, from when you guys crossed into Kuwait. But what's that experience like for you? Uh, that was very surreal. We crossed over at nighttime or maybe very early morning. Maybe, I don't know, what it, was it, like 3 a.m. or something? Yeah. And uh, we we um, didn't meet any resistance. We drove... For day for days without meeting resistance, the first uh, resist you know we it, and the and the landscape is crazy because you don't know who's the enemy and who's not and you off more than often the, the first couple of days you're passing up burned out hulks of vehicles and fighting positions that had already been taken out by aircraft and um, then uh, on the 23rd of March is ex- was the was the big firefight that kind of like uh, broke the seal for everybody in the whole battalion. Shocking up, um, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we well, also when we invaded, you know, to look up in the night sky with my NVGs was a, an unbelievable sight. There was so much arty in the air overhead. It looked like just the sky was full of green lasers and tracers. And I thought to myself, I would not want to be on the receiving end of that because it was, I mean, man, I can't, but I looking back, I wish I had had some sort of video of it or something, but it was crazy. Uh, it was just, the sky was full, you know, I mean, uh, and the civilians watching and listening, when he says already, it means artillery. It's just, you know, rockets, missiles flying overhead. But that must have been incredible. Look almost like Hollywood-like. Uh, it was. It was. That's why I say it was surreal, you know. Only this isn't a movie. You're, you're you know, you're taking part in it. I was. When you watch that, was there a sense of, hell, they don't even need us. I mean, they're bombing the hell out of these guys. There's going to be nothing left by the time we get there. I mean, that's a, for, again, for the civilians, that's a real thing. Like, you know, the, the amount of power we have through the air and through, you know, rockets and missiles and everything else, and I'm using just the general terms for people so military folks don't get mad at me. But, you know, the amount of power that we have is pretty awesome. Like, that's, you oh, know, yeah. we can literally level entire cities if we wanted to. And so was there a sense of like, what the hell are we doing now? They're going to be, they're going to end this thing before we get there. No, I, I didn't. I didn't really think that uh, because we were still pushing north and we were still bound to get into some big cities. I, in my mind, I thought, man, well, you know, I understand that you can you can just you can you can have air superiority, but you're still going to have uh, ground resistance. And right. so uh, we we ended up on the 23rd of March crossing the Tigris, and from there we went north. I uh, can't remember. Is it Route One? Uh, it goes north. Route the, yeah. yeah, and um, we ended up uh, ten miles north of the the closest Marine um, unit. Like we punched out ten miles uh, ahead. Uh, the whole battalion. 
uh, so this is the whole third light armored reconnaissance battalion. So you're talking uh, tow variant, LAVs, uh, mortar, 81 millimeter mortar variants. Um, and we even had fourth LAR reservists with their air defense with giant Gatling guns on them. And then of course the LAV 25s, we were uh, strung out over kilometers. I mean, we, there was a lot, I mean, there's a whole battalion and um, that's a ton of firepower. Oh, it's a crazy amount. Um, and we were about to find out how crazy because um, the uh, Iraqi army had set up an ambush for us and it got all jacked up. We'd been passing. Of course, we had Cobras doing like a 10-click rotation, like orbit ahead of us. And as the sun went down, they had to go back. Um, and so then we were on our own. And we started seeing lots of guys like in groups off to the sides of the roads, but not in military uniforms, you know, burned out technicals and stuff that had been spotted, you know, by the Cobras. We passed a bunch of those and um, three pickup trucks approached us as the sun was setting with their headlights on. And I was the third vehicle back in the entire battalion uh, column movement up this road. Um, So, I'm a Bravo company, first platoon, third LAR at this time. And <clears throat> these trucks come up and I hear, cause I have a calm helmet on them popped out of the back of the LAV of the troop hatch with my saw gunner. And he's got saw up there on the hatch. We're both standing up uh, in the back and I hear a radio chatter like, uh, okay, we got these technicals coming and, that people are asking if they're showing signs of aggression or they have any weapons and it's a negative. And we end up doing like a herringbone, which is like when the vehicles pull off left, right, you know, staggered all the way down and, and, and just pausing for a sec because these vehicles, uh, one had driven up and stopped next to my vehicle. And there was three guys in the front of the pickup truck. And then there were eight guys sitting along the bed rails of the pickup truck. Uh, four with their backs to us, four facing us. And the other two vehicles were in front of the whole battalion uh, a ways. This one just came in a little closer. So uh, I'm hearing the stuff on the radio and I'm looking at these guys and they, they kind of look scared. Like, oh, I didn't really, I don't think they meant to do whatever they were doing. <laughs> I don't know what they were doing. And uh, I'm looking and I'm hearing him saying, hold your fire. And I see a guy turn his head and look up over his shoulder at me, you know, up, up like like that, you know, because he just can't help himself. He's curiosity. He's killing him. And as he does it, I see the barrel of his AK come out of the jacket. And then when he turned his, like, come out, and then he turned his head and went back. I was like, ah, you know, and I'm a young Marine. I'd never been in a firefight before. I immediately I get on the comms. I'm like, staff sergeant. I look across the guys in between his jacket. He's got the uh, AK-47 chest rig on. He's trying to cover it. So I'm like, Staff Sergeant, they got two gear in my platoon, Sergeant. You know, they got two gear in AKs. Ah, can I engage? And he's like, what? You know, like, he radios up the company. Meanwhile, I got my buddy Dane's got a saw on him, looking at these guys. And all of a sudden, they freaked out. They all, they probably heard me. I mean, I could have hocked a loogie on him. I should have thrown a grenade in there and got like an uber cool kill or something. <laughs> I, could have done, I mean, they could have they could have thrown a grenade and you know blew me up. I mean, they were that close, and um, they all piled out. And then everybody saw the weapons. And at the same time, the other two trucks dumped out. 
I don't know what they were going to do, but they, I don't think a single one of them made it more than 20 feet. They were done. They got engaged with the main guns, with everything that we had. Then we started rolling. It was a rolling firefight that lasted quite some time. Our air officer called in slingshot, which was the brevity used uh, to uh, get priority with all the available aircraft on station because we were in a big, uh, they had some tanks moving around. They were trying to maneuver on us off to our flanks and um, they were spotted. So we were, we got so much air on station that that's what, when it became like what you're talking about, where like they didn't leave anything else for us to do. They took everything out. And so I think in the end, maybe, uh, I think the numbers are between three and 400 Iraqi soldiers were killed and I'm, none of us, nobody got killed. Wow. Yeah. You're, you were, you said you were 10 miles North of the, the Tigris. Yeah, yeah. 10 miles north of the Tigris as you cross yeah. through Baghdad kind of, side of the city. So we're, we're way South of Baghdad still. This okay. is the 23rd of March. So, um, we never so so that was a big firefight, and then that we decimated them. I think they nicknamed our the LAVs the Great Destroyers. Like they didn't really want to mess with them after that, you know, because they realized the firepower was just too crazy uh, for them. And then we um, we got into some other little kind of skirmishes. Uh, we got tasked out with going to a lot of places uh we weren't my company wasn't the main effort into baghdad so i never went into baghdad uh during the invasion we skirted we went to D, we went to nazaria uh-huh. you know, there was some fighting in nazaria we went to diwania yeah uh after about 10 miles south of baghdad but yeah uh, not in the city limits yeah so um I never saw Baghdad and then everything died down real fast. So um, it got real calm. So you get back from that first deployment and uh, you guys start obviously just doing your refit and everything else. Uh, How quickly do you start to hear about a second deployment? Well, my second deployment, uh, when we got back from the first deployment, we went on leave, came back from leave. I took a recon screening because I'd always wanted to go to recon. They weren't letting me take the screening. I got in trouble for taking it once without asking because the battalion was calling up asking for orders for me to go down there to train. So I passed the screening, and I got orders to go down to um, uh, the first recon battalion, and I did the pre-basic reconnaissance course um, in August of 03, and that's a month long. That's a real kick in the gut, like really a gut check. You know, you, you you think you're in shape, but then they take it to the next level, you know? And, um, yeah, so then I graduated that little battalion run course, and uh, then I got orders cut to go to basic reconnaissance course, which at the time was run down at uh, EWTG PAC, uh, Expeditionary Warfare Training Group Pacific, down on Coronado. So that was fun. That was cool, training next to the SEALs, you know, making fun of them, taking their hard hats from outside the chow hall, messing with them and stuff. <laughs> seems like a dangerous game (laughs) yeah it's kind of it was in good fun you know i got a lot of seal buddies i love them you know so so after reconnaissance school then where do you go next so that graduated recon school in november of 03 and uh then we went straight into another workup uh as in before because the 
first week on battalion got word they were going to be going back in February. So we had basically January and February. I, I got, I got, you know, I got put into a team, you know, in a platoon. I was uh, Bravo Company's second platoon, team one. And um, there were five man teams at the recon battalion. Uh, and um, so then uh, it was just straight into um, uh, the same sort of thing practicing our standard operational procedures, getting our tactics down, getting, you know, getting dialed in with our weapon systems. And uh, I, I went to an Arabic course, a language course for a month. I forgot about that. So every day my job was to sit eight hours and learn Arabic. That was, I kind of enjoyed that. That, that was an interesting course. So, but it, and it helped me because I'd already been, so I could kind of associate some of the, what I was hearing. And then the next time we went to Iraq, I could communicate with these guys. When it, when is that second time officially happened? February of '04. Four. Okay, and you're going where? We went. We flew into Kuwait, and then we drove straight up to Fallujah. And I'll tell you, I noticed a big difference this time around from the last time. Even though it had been basically uh, a year, mm-hmm. um, when we invaded Iraq, a, a, we were met with a lot of. Uh, you know, people and kids saying Bush number one, yay Bush, America number one, things like that. They saw us as liberators uh, or they just didn't want us to kill them. Uh, Cause I, I guess they, everybody, you know, what they were told is we were just going to kill everybody. Uh, and then the second time around, as we're driving up from Kuwait, uh, I saw a lot of animosity. I saw a lot of anger. I said, people were not afraid to show that they did not like us. And then when we got into Fallujah, you could just got a sense that this place was jacked up, like, you know. And so we, the 82nd Airborne was rotating out of Fallujah, and we came in, and they told us, you know, gave us the rundown, told some, whoever we were talking to told us, don't drive through Fallujah during the day or this time or that time, and they had all these rules uh, they'd been whatever way they had figured out to pass the year. So the first thing we did was drive right through the middle of Fallujah when they told us we shouldn't do it. You know, of course, yeah, like, we're here, you know, take a look. And that you could see the people's faces were shocked. Like, Oh, what the heck? We're driving right through the middle of town because, of, you know, um, maybe it'd been a minute or they hadn't, we were different. We weren't the army, you know, uh, our Hummer, our Humvees were equipped differently than even the regular Marine Corps and our, we just, you know, we were just, we stood out. So we um, got to Fallujah and then Fallujah was the real war. That place was the wild west. Yeah. So. So from the minute you get on ground, this is a operational tempo that's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Were you getting attacked more uh, and more defensive at that point in time? We weren't uh, defensive, but we were, we were, we were offensive, um, but we were getting attacked uh, every day, I guess, if you count uh, rockets and mortars coming down on Camp Fallujah. Sure. So, I mean, it got to the point where, uh, you know, you don't even get out of your rat. If you're fortunate enough to be sleeping on the FOB, you know, the base, um, you know, you hear the rockets impacting or mortars, and you can just kind of tell they're not they usually landed in clusters in the same area. So you're like, I'm not even going to get out of bed. <laughs> just roll over, you know? Um, 
So you kind of get used to it, but we were, we had a real high up tempo. We were all, we were doing counter, uh, uh, mortar and rocket interdiction type, uh, team insertions. So we'd find hide sites and we'd wait till they turn their generators off or it was dark and run around and do our thing, uh, ambush opportunity type stuff. And, um, that was kind of successful. Uh, you know, I, uh, but, um, we were only there. I mean, I, I was only there for two months and I got hit, you know, so. Prior to your, your, your injury, did you guys lose anybody? Do you have any, have any casualties? No, uh, it had been pretty quiet. They tried to hit us with a couple IDs, but they were mistimed. So they didn't, um, you know, they just went off in between our vehicles and things like that. Uh, maybe some pop shots here and there where, you, you know, somebody would let loose with an AK and then duck back into disappear wherever the hell they came from, you know? Um, yeah. It was kind of like that. And for, for civilians listening, 2004 is really when the, the term IED started to come into normal lexicon, right? Like the improvised explosive device, vehicle-borne uh, improvised explosive devices or V-beds as they call them, uh, you know, like the, that was really the surge of them in Iraq. Um, and by the time I'd got there in 2005, that's 90% of what you worried about more than anything. Other than a mortar landing in your ass and you just being unfortunately incredibly unlucky. Uh, yeah. because yeah. For the most part, they didn't spend a lot of time trying to walk walk mortars into a specific target. They just hoped to hit something when they fired them. So, That's right, because the um, the army's counter battery was on point, and they had learned that. So I was getting um, data from the 82nd Airborne's counter battery unit. Like I wanted to know where these rockets and mortars were coming from, and they had it all on their map overlays. They had the whole history for the whole year. It was great. I'm like, wow. thank you. We will use this for mission planning. I remember my intel officer saying, where'd you guys get all this stuff? Like, just ask them. <laughs> so, yes, Army guys can be a little bit helpful. No doubt us. Uh, they were great. So while we were in, while, uh, while I was there talking to them, they brought me and my buddy into the trailer, the counter-battery radar trailer. Well, lo and behold, here comes a rocket. So we got to see live action, how they roll up, like the little, dot moves on the screen they got the grid coordinates they pick up the phone to the gun line bam like with less than 30 seconds they had rounds going back down range so wherever those mortars and rockets were being launched from the reason they didn't walk them in um and, and take their time is because as soon as they fired them there was uh army and then marines loading artillery rounds and firing them right back at them so uh so 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 that thank god was a good deterrent to accurate fire on the base right um okay so april 7 2004 uh, take me through that morning uh and the initial events of that day was it a normal day were you guys heading out on a patrol what was the sort of background uh we had just come back uh a week prior, the Blackwater contractors had been killed and drugged through the streets and burned and hung from the bridge. And it was real um, aggressive back then, it, violent, you know. And uh, it was the first Battle of Fallujah, they call it, where they we cordoned off the city. And we knew, and we said, you know, nobody's coming in, nobody's coming out, it's going down. And um, so we had just come back night before from uh 
a mission where we had been inserted and immediately had to retool, respin up. I mean, really didn't have much time to sleep or do much, you know, except for, uh, you know, outfit our vehicles again and, and uh, redo our communications and things like that, you know. Um, and then we got a Frago. We had to leave that morning to go to another area uh, where we would be operating out of during the uh, uh, while we took the city back. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, you kind of had a, I kind of had a feeling something was going to go down. I think even, I think I even wrote something in my journal. I said something that day, just like one or two lines, like, uh, I think today they're going to come out and play something like that. And they sure did. So we got, um, we set off later than we had planned on. And we ended up going through um, the south side, you know, head west out of Camp Fluja across the Euphrates on what is called the Dam Bridge. But it's a bridge and it's also a dam. Uh, and we, we took some incoming rounds there. We stopped uh, for a while. Uh, I remember staring at a group of uh, men, probably 20 of them, and they were all in civilian gear and they didn't have any weapons and they were glaring at us, giving us the dirtiest looks from across this big, um, uh, ravine, uh, irrigation ditch. And, uh, you know, I remember I had my machine gun. I had a little parasol, the M249 belt fed five, five, six weapon. And I remember I just had it like, you know, I wasn't pointed at them, but I had it ready. Like I just expected them to get stupid and they didn't do anything. Uh, we ended up pulling out of that little area and then getting back on the main MSR. I think it was route Boston heading West goes under the railroad tracks and out to the rock ASP it's a ammo supply point that was there. And that's where we got hit. Well, I knew we were going to get hit because, uh, you know, you could just got this vibe, like there was no traffic. So I got on the radio. We're the very first vehicle. And, uh, I radioed back. I said, Hey, uh, you know something's not right up here we're just gonna stop and get eyes on real quick before we move forward so they're like roger that then we got the call like hey we got to get going you know and uh move out and they were like pick up the speed to 25 kilometers per hour and i'm thinking man we're just gonna go full speed into this ambush so i dismounted i spit my dip out dismounted my ammo box from the mount on the pinnel mount that my saw was on took my saw off it Got that ready so I could bounce out of the vehicle if I needed to with my ammo. And um, the car had was coming towards us uh, maybe half a click ahead and all of a sudden did a U-turn as fast as it could and sped off. And that's when I knew going down, like, oh, here we go. And so did you the, say anything out loud to anybody? Did you get on the radio and make a call or all these thoughts are sort of... Yeah, no, I, 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 I mentioned the car and we stopped again for a second. And, um, but we had, you know, time had priority, I suppose, on that mission. So we had to get to where we were going. Um, it, it made more sense in hindsight after talking to some other guys that were there, like General Tulin and stuff that like he explained, like the whole big picture, like why we had to roll. Like, you know, sometimes you can't always make the best decision. And, um, no, no, hold on real quick. I mean, so you get that justification and it gives you context knowing that would you have done anything different? 
No, no. <laughs> I mean, you still think it was the best decision to kind of floor it and get the hell out of Dodge? Well, I don't know if – I mean, I don't – I wouldn't have floored it maybe if I was – I might have rolled in a little slower, but um, I'm not sure it would have made much difference. We Our SOP was to stop and engage at the time if we were if we were ambushed. It wasn't to just step on it and uh, to try to get out of there. So when we did get ambushed, that's exactly what we did. And since I was the first vehicle, we were the first vehicle, uh, my platoon was the first vehicle, you know, our alpha element stopped and set a base of fire, and our bravo element moved into flanking. What's the, what's the first contact that you receive? How was it? I just started hearing machine gun fire. And so first thing I do is call out contact, right? You know, where the direction, and I threw that uh radio down and picked up my machine gun and started engaging because uh it went from zero to a hundred like that so just take me through kind of you know after the initial contact how it goes down sort of sequentially for you okay so we we get hit uh they initiate the ambush with small arms fire and machine heavy machine gun fire uh and rocket propelled grenades so uh we immediately stopped and uh started engaging the enemy for me uh i had since i was in the back right seat of the humvee i had the uh basically you know you could look at maybe maybe like four o'clock to 12 o'clock on like, you know, it, it w- was basically where I could fire, you know? Mm-hmm. And in that, if you're looking, you know, if you're ca- talking about the direction, like if North, if, if 12 would be the front of the vehicle. So mm-hmm. I have this whole from the front to the right, all the way out to the side. And, uh, and my team leader and uh, I were engaging the enemy and they were just kind of everywhere. They were, we were, we were uh, in the middle of their ambush that they had set for us and they'd let several, several convoys go through, you know, but, but they got, they initiated this ambush with us. I think they wanted to, uh, I think they were mad at us because we've been messing, messing up their plans for the previous few weeks. So they, um, so, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm firing a pretty high volume of rounds and I suppressed the guys that were firing at us from behind the berm to my, to our re- immediate right flank. And I moved my my gun over to fire kind of at our one o'clock more towards the front. Uh, and, um, you know, where we were still getting a lot of fire and I was hearing uh, explosions, several explosions. And I thought, you know, they must be hitting the guys behind us with RPGs and things like that. Because to the to, up to that point, I hadn't seen any RPGs. Uh, but they have a kind of a distinct sound. And... Um, so I uh, went to engage the enemy up at our one o'clock, but my barrel of the barrel of my machine gun was like an inch over my team leader's gun, rifle. So I, I just kind of moved back over to look for more targets back over here. And that's when I got hit. So the whole time from the initiation of the ambush to where I got hit was probably, I don't know, seems like a, it could be anywhere between 30 seconds or, or, or a minute. It was pretty fast. Um, and, uh, I thought, 
that I had been shot in the face because while we were sitting there, uh, we were in the kill zone. I mean, the amount of uh, machine gun fire hitting our vehicle, and this isn't an up-armored Humvee. This is an open Humvee. Like, a, it was a clamshell one, but we didn't have... I mean, our doors were were cut in half with a cutting torch. I had duct tape over the edge of my door, you know, so I wouldn't snag myself on the sharp edges. And we we didn't think much about IEDs at that time in the early part yeah. of 04. Right. Like you are saying, that was when it was first, you know, people were still really starting to wrap their heads around it and talk about it. So our thing was open Humvees and be able to dismount. So so many rounds went somehow miraculously missed my face, missed my, uh, the assistant radio operator who was in the left seat in the back. I thought for sure he would have had to been shot. If I didn't get shot, he got shot. Cause that one was right by, you know, you can tell when they crack by your ear. So, uh, it was a tremendous boom. Like I wrote, uh, before you know it was like a thunderclap originating from inside your head you can't really describe it just like boom and i thought since so many rounds were flying by that i got shot in the face or the head or something and i just expected that i was gonna die and i yelled out the first thing i did was i yelled out that i was hit at the top of my lungs and then i shut up because i felt stupid for yelling that out like it was cliche it's a weird things that go through your head in combat or I guess when you get your hands blown off. <laughs> uh, shut up. I felt stupid for yelling that out. And I was just like, okay, I'll see what it's like to die. I wonder if I'll be brain damaged. I wonder if uh, I'll know I'm brain damaged. And I realized, hey, idiots, you're thinking like, obviously, you know, not brain damaged. Like, uh, your brain, this is all at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is all in a span of, I could be a nanosecond. I don't know. Uh, um, just a couple seconds, and I, all these thoughts roll through my head. I I remember thinking that if I'm gonna die, well, I guess I wonder what it, I I'll see what it's like. I remember thinking that I wish uh, for for just a brief moment, I thought maybe I should, you know, I, I wish I could tell everybody back home that everything's okay. Uh, they'll miss me, and then I went kind of in this Zen place. I don't really don't know how to describe it. Kind of like near death experience or something where I just knew everything was okay. Uh, there was nothing to worry about. The time, in a sense, didn't exist. I don't know how to explain it. That that yeah. my family didn't have to worry about me if I died. That we would, it would be okay. That you know, I wish I could tell them it would be okay, but it doesn't matter. They'll they'll know it's okay. But you know, my anyway. Uh, and I was like, did well, you, wait a you, minute. What? Did you know what you had been hit with at this point? No, I still thought I got. Were you still trying to ascertain, like, yeah? This, this is all. These thoughts are happened happened in uh, literally like a second. I mean, it's it's so fast. I mean, it just. I thought all these thoughts, and I thought, man, I'm going in. I don't, you know, I, I I can't be going into shock. I gotta chill out. You're not, I'm not dying because obviously here I am still thinking. And it's like when I thought to myself, I got to calm down because I'll go into shock. Uh, it was like somebody hit the light switches and turned them on. Everything came back on. Like I mellowed out, everything came back on. And I was back there and maybe a couple seconds had passed. I don't know. 
And uh, I was in a lot of pain. And I looked down at my left arm. I raised it up like this, you know, and I looked down at it and I thought, oh, fuck. And it was disgusting. I mean, I've got pictures because I, I, I met the surgeon who worked on me in Alta Cotton, but it was nasty. And then I, my right hand was hurting and I, and I raised it up and I looked at it, you know, and my uh, hand was gone. The skin of my hand was kind of dangling off the end of my carpal tunnel bones. There was one or two little jagged palm bones sticking out, broken. And it looked like uh, an empty glove that, that had been shredded by like a garbage disposal or something. It was just like I had all my skin and stuff. It was just nasty. And I thought, fuck, both of them. I feel like this deserves an F-bomb. It was a pretty heavy moment, you know? <laughs> and uh, I don't know that an F-bomb quite covers all of it, but we'll, we'll give you yeah, a just, least one. Yeah, <laughs> appreciate it. So I... I looked down at my leg, my left leg, and that is the one that concerned me the most because the blood on my hands was kind of oozing out. It's sort of, I don't know, self-cauterized or something. I mean, there's a blast injury, but probably the, the RP, I realized I'd been hit with an RPG, you know, at this point I'm like, oh shit, you know, I was an RPG and my leg is blown, almost blown off. I guess my femur was sticking out and it was just gleaming white with like the bright red just dumping out of it with every heartbeat. And it was the most critical injury that I had. And I knew that from my training, I'm like, I have got to stop the bleeding on this. Cause I could literally see with every heartbeat, like a coffee cup full of blood, just out, you know? And, uh, so I just went into work mode. Uh, I just, Everything that we trained to do, that's kind of what I did. I, I couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't do things with my hands, but I was still uh, a corporal. I was still an NCO. I was still an assistant team leader in my team. So then it just became like, all right, we were all jacked up. My team leader uh, had a big uh, hole in the back of his tricep. His elbow was shattered. Like his arm was dangling. He was putting a tourniquet on with his left hand on himself uh the driver was dazed um the gunner was out like no not making a sound laid out like his feet were up on the roof he wasn't standing in the turret anymore he was like curled up on there uh and uh the uh assistant radio operator was indeed alive had not been shot but he was everybody was just full of little bits of shrapnel and stuff and dazed uh, kind of. I mean, uh, there's only one RPG that did all this. Yeah, because it hit my um, it hit my saw, and I was kind of a little bit sticking out the window. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to lean out because I did. I was using the the you know, the Humvee as cover because so right. many rounds were coming, and um, so I'm, so the RPG hit the hit my saw and so the blast came through the windows jacked everybody up i have the tail end of the rpg the little stabilizing end of it where the fins pop out of it was in the back of the humvee when they cleaned it out after the ambush uh a little lance corporal found it and he showed it to our platoon sergeant and uh 
you know, he said, give me, you know, so he, he brought it home with him and gave it to me. Um, and so it was because it was that close, I think. What? Yeah, I got it. Yeah. 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 I had my helmet. There's a big hole, shrapnel hole in the, in my helmet, right in the front where my forehead is. If I hadn't been wearing that, I'd be done for. I had um, ballistic glasses on, you know, they were Wiley X's. Um, oh, yeah. And they, if I hadn't had those on, I'd be blind. They were shattered off my face, but they saved my eyes, uh, you know. Uh, and um, so then it was just kind of a, a little chaotic because it seemed like the enemy had stopped firing at us, but they hadn't, you know. It's just we were all deaf. We couldn't hear it. But it all started coming back in. And we're like, shoot, we got to get the hell out of here. Uh you know, some things I said, like I told my team leader, it's like, hey, Eric, I guess, uh, you know, I guess maybe today wasn't a good day to go out. We should have stayed back at the hooch, you know, just cracking jokes to try to lighten the mood. Yeah, because yeah. it's <laughs> fucked. And uh, and I was talking to our assistant radio operator. I'm like, hey, bro, get the blowout kit, which was our first aid kit we kept in the vehicle, you know. But he was having trouble finding it because everything was kind of all fucked up back there because of the uh, RPG blast. So I'm like, just just get my tourniquet. You know, I had one in each of my shoulder pockets. And um, so he did. And I had him put one on my leg first. I said, get my leg first because, you know, and so he does it. He's like, oh, you know, he's, you know, wigging out because I'm nasty looking. He probably thinks he's going to die and I'm already dead or whatever. You know, and um, I'm like, it's cool, man. Just just to get it on there tight, you know, you got this, like I, I was all I could do to just, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where it's so life and death that all I could do is just be as calm as I could to try to pass that on to him. So he got my tourniquet on my left leg. My team leader reaches back after he's done with his tourniquet and grabs it to test to see if it's tight enough and it friggin' pops off. And I'm like, Oh no, and the blood starts squirting out again. So he put it back on and uh, then he did my left arm and then he did my right arm. And in the meantime, you know, uh, we got with our signal plan to let them know we had some wounded, the vehicles behind us, but we had to, we had to mash it out of there. The driver had to just stomp on it because we were just in the kill zone. And so the vehicle just kind of limped out on flat tires and, you know, um, and, uh, we sped up and stopped about a hundred yards up because there was a roadblock enemy roadblock up front, but it was enough to give us a break from the firepower or the ambush to, uh, get with our alternative radio comms, our visual signal plan, a team leader switched seats with the driver because the driver could still fire with both hands. The team leader was driving and the gunner was out on the roof. And, and so, you know, uh, one of the guys was like, Hey, so-and-so's out. He's not responding in my mind. I'm like, man, we, we, that sucks, but we got to focus. Like, what can we do right now? And we, you know, you see, we've seen that awesome powers movie where they, where he's in the hallway and he's in the little golf cart and he tries to turn around. It takes him like a million back and forth. Seven point turn. Yeah. (laughs) That was us. That was us on this one lane road. You know, I thought, Oh my God this is taking forever, you know? And, uh, cause I knew, okay, I got my bleeding stopped. 
I think I can be good. I just got to get to my corpsman, and then they got to call in the Kazovac, you know, and we'll be good to go. And um, so I knew there was stages that if I could hit these little wickets, I could I could survive this thing, you know. And so I was kind of in a hurry. And uh, the enemy was, I, you could see them fools running around like, you know, there were some fields. So they, you know, they were running around the backs of the berms and the backs of the houses in the back of the fields trying to get around to where they could finish us off. And I'm like, this is fantastic. You know, like this is a jacked up situation. And so we ended up being able to turn around. Then we had to go back through that kill zone. So we had to engage them again or the guys, you know, who could. And we pulled up behind uh, another the, uh, Humvee that was in our formation, you know, because we did a UE and came back through and used that for cover from where the heaviest fire was coming from. My first sergeant ran up and he's a Puerto Rican guy. He's like, yo, he says to my team leader, are you okay? And he's like, no, first sergeant, we're all fucked up. <laughs> he's like, don't worry, I will take care of you. Anyway, they pulled me out and my leg bent like in the middle of it where it's not supposed to bend. And I'm like, ow. But to tell you the truth, everything hurt so bad that it didn't hurt. You know what I mean? Uh, it was kind of still uh, the adrenaline and everything. And they got me uh, patched up a little more. They got some fluids in me. They stuck me in the back of an open back Humvee. So I was like, just like laying on a couch watching the movie because the firefight and everything was still going on around me. And I remember my one of my teammates had jumped up on the 50 cal and finally got that thing rocking and rolling on top of the the uh, Humvee. And um, I leaned my head up and uh, I I said, get some. And that, that took all my energy out of me. I almost passed out. I had to lay back down. I had to control my breathing like, all right, man. All right. Hey, don't do that again. You're going to pass out. You got to stay awake. You know, like, uh and it took a good 45 minutes for the Kazovac to come. Uh, we got thinking? one. No, it was a very, it was April 7, 2004. So it was going down all over Fallujah. And all we got was one CH 46 and one Cobra, but that's all we needed. So how, once I heard the, how many IVs did you have to take in 45 minutes? He just gave me one. Um, you know, he'd stopped my bleeding and he just got me plugged in. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have the guy, our, our corpsmen go to the, um, they're, they're special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen. So they're schooled up like the Army uh, 18 Delta guys, like the yeah. SF medics. Like they're, they're great. Like you're like, oh, I'm glad I have you and not the doctor at the ER. You know, like that, that they're really good. So um, I felt pretty confident, but it was just, um, I think because I was in great shape and because I kept control of my mind and didn't just freak out and go into shock that I was able to make it in that golden window, you know, because I remember when we landed or they loaded me on when it, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the firefights going on. Finally, I hear um, the, the helicopters and I hear the Cobra and I'm like, yes. Yeah, we're good to go. Like we're not the Cobras are here. Like we're we're set. You know what I mean? And I just knew that that could turn uh, any ambush, and um, it did. It just cleaned up everybody else who was on the outskirts because they had uh, planned this out to to cut us off and then to just 
whittle us away, you know, uh, while we were stuck in this single lane high ground with no cover. But our training reversed it on them. So the helicopter, the 46 lands pretty close and they didn't have to run me too far. So they come in to get me and they run me up on the bird and they put me on there in the stretcher. Then the walking wounded's coming on. Uh, there was seven of us total on that plane, on that helicopter. And then the, um, and then they brought my platoon commander in. Uh, and I knew he, he, he was, you know, either dead or not going to make it. I, I mean, he was white like a sheet. He had lost so much blood. I mean, white. I don't know how to describe it. And uh, what? Did that freak you out at all? Well, at this point, I'm kind of like as unsettled as you're going to get. I mean, my hands are gone and like. uh, Well, no, I I I guess you meant sort of the standpoint of like. Okay, you know now I'm now I'm going to die. Like I've realized you realize that somebody else is. Expired. Oh, no, it, no, no way. I was oh, okay. never in my mind that I think I'm going to die. Okay. Um, I just, I just had confidence that I could hang. Um, I knew like that, that the, that the hospital, once I was in the bird was not very far. I th- like in my mind, I thought we were going to go to Camp Fallujah, but we went to Alta Cottam, so it was a little farther than I, that I had expected. So I, I remember thinking, where the hell are we going? You know, but once we landed, they, the, they, they uh, had ground personnel come on, the, the ramp went down. And in my mind, as we're flying, I'm considering like, how did they triage me? Am I classified as expectant, meaning that I'm going to die. So they don't need to bother with me or urgent or something else. I don't know. And so I just made up my mind, like, I'm going to just get the dude's attention when he comes on the plane. And, so I, I, I ended up meeting this guy and talking to him years later. He said he runs on, they run in to go get uh, my platoon commander. And I popped up like, Hey, what, you know, like, don't <laughs> about forget me. about me. And he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like he didn't you like, cause uh, you know, they only hear what's on the radio. Maybe they thought I was done for, I don't know. So they grabbed me too. Like they grabbed the both of us and then they ran us in literally ran. Um, and put us in a triage tent and started working on us. And that was, that's a, that's a, that's a memory too. I mean, it was a, you know, a military GP tent, but like a surgical unit, but it was a big room. There was, I wasn't the only wounded guy in there. There was a bunch. I remember a Marine was sitting on a gurney, just looked dazed. He wasn't really, they had no expression on his face and it was pretty hectic. And uh, I was, uh, they rolled me over. You know, and I guess the doc has to stick his fingers up your up your butt to like check for rectal bleeding uh, when you have a blast injury or shot up. And I says, "Hey, doc, how about a reach around?" And they thought that was pretty funny. And uh, I don't know, I was just cracking jokes like uh, this nurse. I mean, I was in pain, but I was so happy to be there. I knew I was going to be okay for some reason. And this nurse came by, and I said, "Hey," and she turned around. She heard me. And she came back and she leaned in close, you know, to my face because uh, I'm, I'm sitting there laid out. And I said to her, I go, I go, how many Irishmen does it take to change a light bulb? And she looked at me crazy, like, what in the world? You know, like the last thing she expected me to say. And uh, I said, hey, feck it. We'll drink in the dark. And uh, I don't know. She started cracking up. I felt uh, 
<laughs> the place was too t- too uptight, you know what I mean? And um, it was my way of handling it. And uh, so then uh, years later, I'm working in San Diego and I meet a Navy psychologist who wrote a book. She was embedded at Alta Cotton at the time. And she would talk to these nurses and hospital staff and Marines and stuff who would work on all of us coming back wounded. And, and uh, anyway, Dr. Heidi Kraft wrote a book called Rule Number Two. So rule number one is people die in war. Rule number two, there's nothing you can do about it. That's the premise, you know. And and uh, in the book, there's a chapter, the gunny and the Marine, uh, she titled it. But, you know, she had to change the rules because of HIPAA rules and stuff. But she, But in person, she's like that chapter is about you because I, the nurses came back after that and told us about this Marine who's <laughs> cracking jokes. <laughs> so I guess it helped out, uh, you know, um, but my pain got, we're going to tell that joke now, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you've now co-opted yeah. the rest of everybody who's watching and listening to this. So I, I, I will have it tomorrow at work. Yeah, I stole it from somebody. I don't remember when. It's one of the two jokes I know, two or three, you know. Well, no, I'm so, curious. Uh, the other joke you know. Oh, uh, I know a long, drawn-out one about Mick and Patty returning from the bar and falling in the grave and freezing. And Patty's all like Irish the jokes? Yeah. That what no, I got some stupid dad ones, like last <laughs> night I woke, you know. Yeah, so, um, but... uh yeah anyways i'm in there after that joke my my pain just got really really unbearable and so the next time i uh called the nurse over i i said hey can you hook me up give me something because it's killing me and i don't even know if she ended up giving me anything but i i blacked out uh then and then i woke up nine days later in uh bethesda maryland in the icu at the national naval medical center when you wake up, who's the first person you see? Well, I have a memory of them bringing me out of an induced uh, coma, so to speak, uh, and asking me if I knew where I was or or, or bringing me out. And I, I forgot I didn't have my hands. And I was trying to pull the respirator out. And they put me back under. And I don't know if it was a day later or whenever. They brought me back out. And... Uh, they kept asking me, do you know where you are? Well, of course I knew I was in the hospital, but I was irritated with the question because how the hell, where, how would I know where the hospital is, you know, or what hospital? So I just kind of didn't really answer. And that's probably why they kept asking me. And um, anyway, somebody said that I was at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. So then in my mind went to, where's Bethesda? I'm trying to picture it on a map, you know what I mean? <laughs> So I was in ICU another nine days or something. Had a couple, had another one or two surgeries, you know, and then mm. they moved me out of there. But I was in ICU when Corporal Dunham was in ICU. And I don't know if you know, I'm sure you've heard of him. He uh, received the Medal of Honor posthumously. Yeah. And, um, all the walls in ICU are glass, so if the curtains aren't closed, you know, you can see out. And it was a pretty sad day, like, uh, when they, you know, when his parents came and the command came and, and uh, you know, he was declared, like, uh, brain dead, you know, and they pulled the plug on him. I remember I was in my bed in ICU trying to trying to 
stand at the position of attention while I'm laying down because I knew this young Marine was going to be dead in a few minutes. It was pretty sad, you know. Um, but are, I, are you ever surprised with the amount of mental clarity? Not only that you held through the whole thing, but you still remember about everything to this day. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, I, I think I didn't. Um, I, I, I can give you all kinds of uh, offers as to like how I was able to do it, but um, yeah, I don't know if anything's definitive. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, we've talked to a lot of people who have been blown up, unfortunately, uh, and you know, the, it's a wide range of everything was a haze. You know, I took a step, and the next thing I, I know, I woke up in a hospital. Yeah. And then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where people remember every single detail from yeah. beginning to end. Um, and, and, you know, n- not that I have any sort of medical or, you know, mental or professional diagnosis of it. It's just, it, it's always, it, it astounds me when I talk to people like you who remember everything with such clarity. Um, I, I don't know if there's a rhyme or reason why. It's just, it's, it's one of those things where the individual uh, somehow, uh, regardless of pain, shock, loss of blood, everything else, near death, is able to just, you know, put it all together for everybody. It's always, it's just amazing to me. I, it's amazing to me. I would never have wanted to try it voluntarily. You know, let me see if I got what it takes. No, it's, you know, like it's, it's like, uh, I mean, I, even I was, uh, you know, for a second I thought I was dead, but once I made up my mind, like, no, no, that's not going down. Everything just sort of cleared up. Like I said, yeah. When, when you start talking to the doctors, do they ask you, do you remember what happened and you're able to just spout it out to them? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, that's the reason why I'm still, uh, friends with, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who was the deputy secretary of defense at the time. He came to visit the wounded Marines at, uh, Bethesda. And I didn't know him from Adam, you know, like, I'm just, I was just glad to be alive. And, you know, this is some dignitary or some politician or, 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 state department guy i don't know you know at the time uh who he is and i just uh he asked me uh, how i was doing or something i just started talking and i told him the whole story kind of like i just told you you know and he was just blew his mind like you know and then uh we ended up um uh becoming friends he bought us our vitamix blender for our wedding gift <laughs> You know, life is a trip, you know. <laughs> I got blown up in a blender. Wow, congratulations. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I got all that awesome awesome hospital chow. Right. Um, do uh, When do you start to get the the explanation from the doctors about the surgeries and everything and, and, and what is coming ahead for you now missing both hands? And, and oh, by the um, way, the status of your leg by the time you woke up. What's that? Yeah, of your leg by the time you woke up. Okay, so when I woke, I'll tell you how I was when I woke up. I was full of tubes. I had a feeding tube in my nose. Uh, I had a tube uh, in the end of this arm, a vacuum tube, suction tube, uh, and then I had one at the end of this arm. I had one in my thigh. I had one in my shin, in my left That's leg. And then, the infection, the suction tubes, is that what they were worried about? They pull out uh, swelling and fluids as my because my body swelled up. My 
my gotcha. I don't even know how to say it, but like my my balls had swelled up so big, they were like two freaking grapefruits, and I had to have like a towel under them. You know, like they were too heavy. They were annoying me while I was in ICU. Is your body? So my body puffed up, and so those things help remove like all these extra fluids. Plus, I had IVs and stuff in me, and so I was wrapped in kind of like a cellophane. you know, I didn't have my skin on my leg yet. They hadn't skin grafted it. So uh, they had almost decided to amputate the leg, but decided to just wait, give it a shot, and see, you know, if it would, the circulation and stuff, you know, would be good to go. And it turned out to be a good thing that they waited because I have my leg now. Uh, and uh, so I had a big, I had a skin graft operation, pretty large one. Like, I mean, the top, my quadriceps is gone. I had to skin graft all that skin on brand brand new. My tibial muscles on my left leg and part of my calf, all that skin graft. And then the skin on my shin on my right leg, skin graft, and then my left arm. And so uh, the skin graft donor sites hurt worse than any of the, I mean, that that was like a, I guess I have some empathy for burn patients, man. They must suck. They got to be the worst. Anyway, um, I uh, was in a good mood. I was happy to be alive. And they had me on a lot of pain meds, too, but, uh, you know, given my circumstance. But I was genuinely just happy. And um, uh, for me, like, thinking about the ambush and stuff, I was was saddened that, like, Captain Morell was killed. But... I was also glad because I saw like so many guys do so many magnificent things. It was just kind of like, yeah, yeah. And something so chaotic and so terrible, you can see such magnificent behavior, you know, like just selfless and awesome, you know? So there's a lot of pride in it. Um, Everybody else from your vehicle make it out. Okay. Yeah. Well, my, you know, uh, two, two, two others got meta back to the States with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else stayed and just went straight into the, ro- you know, kept into the rotation. Uh, they had like uh shrapnel wounds, but nothing that required surgery or life threatening. And, uh, uh, the only one who was killed in the ambush was my platoon commander. And he was posthumously awarded the Navy cross captain Brent Morrell, uh, for saving our asses that day. So like, I tell you a story about my battle but there was a battle going on with everybody in every vehicle. So when you, if you, you know, there's a whole nother perspective from other sides, you know, um, uh, especially the Bravo element who dismounted and flanked the enemy and ended up uh, turning the tide on the ambush, you know? Right. So, so uh, what do you, what do you, when do you learn about kind of how you're going to come out of this whole thing? Well, I knew my hands were gone and they were telling me, Oh, well, we'll get you the best prosthetics there are out there, you know, the robotic hands and things like that. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to get a Terminator hand. You know, I'm still kind of, you know, I'm in ICU and I'm thinking I'm going to get a badass hand. They're talking about the best they have. And I thought maybe they had something amazing. And um, uh, it it was funny because I was kind of moody in there sometimes. And my sister was in there one day and she did something to annoy me something dumb like maybe i wanted her to go get me a chocolate shake at mcdonald's or something because i was craving them and 
I said, when I get my robot hands, I'm going to pop your head. Like, I was so mad. She used to laugh at me, you know. But I, you know, I knew I didn't have hands, and I knew that it was a, at that time, I didn't think, like, oh, I'm going to be out of the Marine Corps now, or what's life going to be like without hands? I think I just was present in the moment and appreciative that I was actually still there. When do you first have the thought of, I want to stay in the Marine Corps? Oh, I always wanted to stay in. I didn't want to get out. So that's what I was telling people. And uh, I admit, uh, I don't, you know, I wasn't the, I was not the first guy to stay active duty after an amputation. There's been quite a few, I think. Uh, but now I know quite a few. But in the yeah, Marine Corps, it was all none. those guys had come later on down the road. Like, yeah, you know, when we're at this point, we had been in three years of war. We are now two decades deep. You know, yeah. after about a decade, they were returning people back to service if they wanted to go. Like you were at the very yeah. beginning of this. Yeah. So uh, my so the commanding general for uh, training and education command down at Quantico at the time was Major General Tom Jones. And he would come to the hospital every week, both hospitals, Walter Reed and Bethesda. He would visit every single Marine, sailor, soldier, all of them. Uh, And uh, I let him know that I wanted to stay in the Marine Corps. And so then as I healed up um, and keeping in contact with these people while I was at Walter Reed, uh, I was uh, offered a chance to stay in. And I said, if you want, we have a place at Quantico at the Martial Arts Center of Excellence at the basic school uh, where you can teach the Marine Corps Martial Arts program and stay in it if you want. And I said, yep, I'm doing it, you know, because I knew I couldn't really be um, I couldn't be a recon or infantry Marine, not with these injuries and do the job. Uh, And uh, so it was a wonderful opportunity for me. And so I did that for a year and it was a little challenging. Um, I still f- had a bone infection in my femur that was draining my energy for quite some time. I had to wrap it every day. You know, it would drain out the side of my leg and my skin graft what, that whole year while I was working. And um, I really enjoyed it, but then I came, to, I had to come to terms with, okay, now, you, you know, I've always wanted to be a Marine. I've always wanted to do this and I got to do what I dreamt of doing. Do I really want to be a Marine and do this? Or is is this my dream? Or, you know, and I, and I realized like, no, I joined because I wanted to be an infantry Marine and I wanted to be a reconnaissance Marine. And I just decided that I was going to retire. So in 2006, I retired, medically retired from the Marine Corps. I got, I got to ask you, um, when you were at the uh, Martial Arts Center of Excellence and you're teaching hand-to-hand combat, did anybody look at you sideways and they introduced and said, this is Sergeant Wright. He's here to teach hand-to-hand yeah. combat. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, most of the students that we teach are young lieutenants in the basic school. So uh, they have by then learned to just 
keep their mouths shut and roll with it, you know. But you could tell they're like, "What's this guy gonna, you know?" So, um, is this a joke? Like, did I show up at the wrong school? Am I being punked? Yeah, yeah. I liked it because um, once I decided that I was gonna retire, then I just kind of said what I really wanted to say to these young lieutenants, like, you know, God help you if you if I catch you half assing. You know, because it was still combat, still fresh in my mind. I'm like, you can't be half-assing your training. Your Marines are gonna half-ass their training when they see you half-assing. You're gonna be fucking half-assed in combat. I I gave a few good lectures. <laughs> uh, I didn't care. I'm like, what are they gonna do? Throw me out? You know? With them, I, I can tell that it was part part of you with that job enjoyed just mentally screwing with them. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, not not in a malicious way, but in a way that, like, you know, there's a, there's got to be a, a a method to your madness. You're not just gonna haze somebody to haze somebody. You you want to teach somebody. You don't need to do that, but you can you can encourage people. You know what I mean in the right ways and motivate people. And and I was in a position where I could call people out. I could say the things that some people might not want to say because it, you know you're not supposed to talk to an officer like that. I mean, I was tactful and respectful. But you know that's just uh, it, it was it was it was good, and I tried to pass on what little knowledge I had, you know, uh, leadership skills and stuff to however I could, if I could, you know, like if anybody pulled me aside and wanted to ask me questions, I was totally open, you know, as I as I am now. Um, what has been the most difficult part about relearning things without any hands? Patience, uh, dealing with frustration, uh, not letting the emotions that uh, are inside of me bubble up uh, in as uh, and express themselves as anger. You know what I mean? Uh, what emotions you talk about? Uh, you know, like uh, you feel left out, or you feel sad that you can't be uh, with your buddies, or you feel sad. You know, you mourn the loss of your hands. You you know, you, there's a little bit of fear in there. Like, what am I, you know, this is the rest of my life. This is going away, you know, um, what will it be like? You know, um, you know, sometimes it's easier to just be angry than to, than to, than to feel. And so I think, uh, patience and, uh, and, uh, trying to teach myself not to, not to just be angry at things. So what's the one thing that you miss the most that you can't do now that you were able to do before? Uh, I tell you, if there's one thing I wish that I really could do, uh, I would love to be able to hold, uh, my wife's hand or, uh, I've never touched her with my hands. You know, we got married after. That would be cool. Um, as far as like shooting, I can shoot. Um, Hold on a second. That was probably the best damn answer I've heard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the best one I could come up with. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, uh, tugs at the heartstrings, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think about it too much, but man. That'd be great. But you know, she, she's very loving. She's like, 
you, 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 I like you this way, you know, it's better than having hands, you know, we're real close. Like we talk, she doesn't even notice I don't have my hands. You know what I mean? Like it's Scott, it's like that. So. Well, I know you mentioned the patience part of it and everything, but what's, what was the hardest thing about recovering from the injuries? Um, probably, um, You know, uh, as a reconnaissance Marine, you're in great shape. You can do everything. You can do most things better than most Marines as far as, like, if it's related to the job because, you you know, you train to a different level or push yourself physically. And then kind of reckoning <laughs> with that ego that comes with that, you know, like, you know, I'm not the measure of my body. Uh, you know, the real you is the only you. And I guess in a way that's a blessing because it happens to everybody as they fall apart and get old mm -hmm. that it happened to me young. I can start to try to wrap my mind around this uh, at an earlier age. Um, but uh, just, you know, watching Marines do what you know you used to be able to do or that you could do better or your friends progress in their careers. There's a little part where you're like, man, that, you know, uh, I can do that. It's part of me, but you know, that stuff just might be ego driven or something. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I think that there's, it's hard to say what's the hardest of anything. There's always going to be maybe different things that come up at different times in the recovery. What do you tell, or have you told your kids when they ask about what happened to daddy's hands? Just say, uh, got him shot off in the war, you know, our youngest, she's nine. So, I don't give her the details like I gave you, but you know, she's, she gets it. I've, she, you know, the kids, by the time you're nine, you know, she never really asked any questions when we were, you know, when she was uh, younger, it was just natural and normal. So with uh, other kids, sometimes I have to explain quite a bit, but I've never had to do it with my own. Other kids, uh, sometimes if I'm not feeling like talking about it, I'll crack a joke and just tell the little kid that I didn't eat my veggies and they fell off. <laughs> you know, stuff, stuff like that, you know. So, um, they, uh, yeah, kids kids are awesome. They, they don't see, they still see people for who they are, you know. No, absolutely. Um you mentioned earlier about coming to grips with your own mortality when, you know, you were in Kuwait prior to crossing the border in the invasion. That yeah. whole event actually happens to you when you kind of think of mortality now. How has it changed for you? I don't think I'm afraid of death uh, as much as I ever was. I... I think I'm okay with it. Um, I believe that we don't just, because of my experiences and my personal beliefs, I don't think we just stop or cease to be. And I do believe that a lot of the things that we worry about and the fear of death are uh, illogical. I don't, uh, you know, um, we're all going to die. It doesn't make any sense to hide from it. You know what I mean? No, yeah. I mean, I, I understand that. I, I guess, as you say it, I'm thinking about me personally, and I go, well, 
I'm probably more scared of death now because I have more, I, there's more of me around. Like, you know, I'm married with children. And yeah. So yeah. Like one of my, personally, my biggest fear is, is not seeing my kids grow up. Right. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what you live for as a parent at this point in time. And so mm-hmm. it's almost like it was, like I said earlier, I, I, I was an easy death when I was just a single guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was, there was, there was really at the end of the day, you recognize everybody's going to go on with their life and sure they'll miss you and there'll be sad and tears and everything else. But there's the, nobody is in real chaos without you. But now it feels like when you have this, this legacy, this family, this, this life that you're building for, for yourself and your children, if that yeah. goes away like that, all of a sudden, that's just me, me spearing my own personal thoughts. I mean, I get what you're saying. I don't disagree that after you've had combat, you understand death and uh, how easily it can come to you. Uh, so I don't think you're, you're ever afraid of it. I just, I, I think the fear of what you'd leave behind without you is sort of, for me at least, where my mind Yeah, is. I, I can completely understand that. Um, like I said earlier, when I, when I got hit, there was a flash where I, all these thoughts ran through my mind where, and, and part of it was, oh, I feel the sympathy for my family that I'm leaving behind. They're not going to have me around They're They have their whole lives to live. And then I, I, it shifted and I realized that they're going to be okay. I thought, I wish I could tell them that they're going to be okay. Don't worry about me, but there really isn't any need. Like they may have some suffering in this short life, but this, I saw that our lifespan is, you can't even say it's less than the blink of an eye. It's almost as if you couldn't apply time to it. Like time didn't really exist. It's kind of a, I don't know what, I mean, it's really kind of an out there kind of way of thinking about it where you, you know, you realize that there's so much more out there. The universe is so much more grand and it's all good. Uh, It's kind of typical near death life experience. What I do now though, is I try not to waste my days. Like I waste time. I, I get emotional or I get angry or like, or whatever. I might be negative during a day. But I try to be aware of that because if, because every day you don't know if you're going to get another one. And when you're thinking about your kids and stuff, it you know it'd be it'd be a damn shame if the last thing you said was like, you know, something where you're chewing their ass or something, and then you go out and you get hit by a bus or something. I, you know, like I I try not to waste any time. I try to be. Um, you know, and of course I have struggles like everybody else, but I, I try to always bring myself back and be like, okay, if we're going to part ways, let's part ways on good terms. Sure. What do you do with yourself now? Obviously you're retired and, you know, you're living off a, a military pension, but uh, is, is there anything else for you that you want to do now that you, you are working on? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a slowly putting together a podcast of my own uh you know it's it's a work in progress i'm uh uh i i still like to be a part of some things that bring awareness to veterans issues. at the end of the month i'm going to do a 25 mile hump uh with some other recon marines to benefit the marine reconnaissance foundation in northern california uh, and uh you know, I like traveling. I love spending time with my wife and the family. And I like to, 
just enjoy my days. I'm, I keep messing around with, uh, thinking about writing a book. Uh, my buddies make fun of me. They, you know, like, uh, if you, if you've ever watched family guy, the dog on family Guy is always talking about the book. He's right. writing. Brian. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard it all like from my buddies, you know, like, uh, where's this book? You know, I post a picture on, um, Facebook of 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 forest earlier, and one of my buddies says to me, "I see all those trees. I'm wondering why you aren't cutting them down and turning them into a paper so you could write your GD book." Like just bust my chops all the time. So I guess maybe I'll do that. I don't know, but um, I'm not really worried about it. You know, I do some public speaking, and every once in a while, I'll do a little consulting. Um, so I was part of a, I did a resiliency study with the Institute for Defense Analysis and the Marine Corps and Office of Navy Research in the VA, uh, trying to mitigate and prevent uh, the, you know, buildup and the, you know, uh, accumulation of stress to, from turning into uh, uh, chronic to acute, you know, and causing PTSD, with PTSD issues and by educating Marines about the body and neurobiology and mind, you know, being, being aware of the body and how to hack into, you know, with a parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, stuff like that. I, I don't know. I'm interested in giving back, I guess. That's the thing that I get from giving back. So in the sense, it's sort of selfish, but like that's just kind of motivates me. And then, you know, family stuff. If, if Eddie right now can sit and write a letter to Marine Corps boot camp, Eddie, what would he tell him in this letter about what he's going to face and how to handle it? I would say enjoy every day uh, and really enjoy it. Uh, the, the hard times in training, uh, learn to learn to love that. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Take your training very seriously. And, um, I, I might say maybe, maybe drink less beers. <laughs> you know, beers. I imagine how how great a shape I could have been in if I didn't have beers on the weekend. You know. So. <laughs> what would he tell him about how to handle the injury? I would say you already have it in you to do what it takes or to, to, you already have it in you to survive this, but, or an injury like that, you know, I feel like I've already, I've, I've always had something in me, but I'd say, uh, don't underestimate the power of your will and your intent, your mind, you know, you can, you know, I, it was kind of reinforced in me through my recon training where it becomes a mind game. Like, cause you, your body is so shot that, that, a lot of times guys that are, that are actually having an easier time physically lose it in the mind game. And that's why they quit. Um, every, every, everything is a battle in your head. I don't, it's a tough question to ask, you know, to just give myself some on the spot advice. I got a lot of lessons. I should probably be, uh, you know, funneling down my younger self struggling. Yeah. You learn this now, you know, but when you put it in the book, I just would like a, you know, a little postscript that, you know, Came up on this podcast. <laughs> I'd say, you know, like for me, I was a young Marine that wanted to be in combat and to prove my mettle and all that, like the books that I read about. 
but there's something you have to understand that there's, there's so many variables in combat that you can't control. So shit happens. And at the same time, that same uh, concept rolls into your career in the military. You don't know when or where something's going to happen or if you're going to be in the right time frame during your service or in the right area of operations or if your your military occupational specialty is going to be needed where they, you know, there is combat. But a lot of guys kind of lament the fact that they, they say they were in, in the wrong time or in the wrong units or whatever. They missed out on all this. I'd say just be, you know, just enjoy it. Don't don't wish for stuff you didn't have because you might just get that wish and you might, yeah, it might come with a price. So, well, Eddie, listen, I think it's pretty amazing to say the least that you've been able to overcome all this. And you know, I, I think what jumps out to me uh, is that mindset that you talk about. I mean, you seem very steady and, and sort of almost unfazed by. Uh, the things that would drag most people down and the things that would, would allow lack of focus to, to bother most people. You seem to have a very good grasp on, on being self-aware of where your mind is and how to, uh, you know, get over the challenges in front of you. I think that comes across pretty readily apparent. Well, thank you. I, uh, you know, I got my own, I, I survive, you know, and like they say, work smarter, not harder. There's no need to, Keep repeating mistakes or keep beating yourself up or keep lamenting something that you no longer have. I don't know. I mean, I just try to roll with it. Well, look, we wish you nothing but continued success. Best of luck, obviously, you know, best to you and your family. As soon as you do get that book written, we'd love to have you back on to, uh, to help promote it and talk about it and everything that you've learned uh, from this experience, obviously. But again, uh, continued success, great health to you and the family. And certainly thank you for being part of the hazard ground. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It was uh it was a good time actually. I appreciate you having me on your show and the best of luck to you and I uh, hope to hear from you again soon. Take care. You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.